Father God, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity today to talk about this subject, this very interesting, crazy subject. God, I thank you for what you've put down in your word and what you've revealed to us through nature to help us understand your story. And God, I, I ask as we open this up and understand a little bit about you and your story and your history, uh, that it brings us closer to you and gives us a, a clearer picture of your plan uh, and the entirety of the scriptures and your whole idea of what you're going to do with this earth. God, we ask that we can just submit ourselves to you tonight uh, and that your Holy Spirit would come in and dwell in us as we open up your word and reveal, reveal your word to us today in a brand new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Fair enough. So tonight we are starting in chapter 6 of Genesis. Um, we are dealing with the story of Noah and the flood. We just dealt with sort of the fall of man and the repercussions um, and how sin led to death and all kinds of craziness in the first story. We've dealt with the story of Cain and Abel, the first murderer, uh, as well as just the idea of redemption and the way that, stor that story has brought that out. So now we're going to deal with the flood. So this is the, the place in the story where God is sort of just over the sin of mankind. And so we're going to see a lot of different subjects being talked about. We're going to see how this narrative in this first worldwide judgment connects to the final worldwide judgment, which is what we just studied in Revelation. Uh, so we're going to look at the history and the future. We're going to look at how the physical and historical descriptions of what happened uh, in chapters 6 through 9, where we see them. Uh, we're going to look at some of what we see in the historical and fossil record and how some of this actually points to the flood story and how you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe what the Bible says. And we're also going to take a look at the spiritual aspect of it, the, the spiritual aspect of how people were acting, what the atmosphere was like on the earth amongst the people before this great and terrible destruction. What I want to say about this and what we're going to read and go through is that we have the right perspective because a lot of times the story of Noah and the ark gets very cutesy and you know you see probably probably seen like little magnets or little Sunday school stories or <clears throat> pictures in coloring books and things like that of like that little boat with you know, a hippo and giraffe sticking up out of the top of it, all big smiles and caricatures, and all looks very happy and sunshiny and fun. And we queued it up for children. But the truth is, the story of this, when actually you look at it from a logistical perspective, from a logical perspective, and, and from the true history of what's really going on, and you really read what's happening in the words, this is a very scary story. Uh, and, it, and so to get rid of the preconceptions that we have of sort of a cute picture of the ark is really important for us to understand what really is going on here um, because we're dealing with big natural disasters, it, the likes of which the world has never seen again. So just kind of look at that that way before we dig into it uh, and kind of erase that picture of the coloring book and the, and the rainbow in your head so that we can deal with God's actual history and what God is really saying uh, here. So we'll get through the first section in chapter 6 and kind of break that down. So 
It says here, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the beautiful daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they choose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also came afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. There were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man uh, was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, um, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the, in the eyes of the Lord. So before we even in, open that up and really dig into it, Jesus refers to Noah uh, very famously when the disciples asked him. The di disciples are alone. They're on the Mount of Olives. And we've talked about this section of scripture a lot because we were talking in Revelation. And this is sort of a picture of the end times events. And Jesus is asked by his disciples about when the end is going to come. What is it going to look like? And so he responds in this way. And this is a portion of Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. He says, but of that day and hour, meaning talking about the end when it's going to come, says, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Now, as we just saw, the flood came and took them all away. So taken is not in a good sense here. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is basically saying the end will come when nobody knows, but here are some things to look for and look for things to be like in the days of Noah. So here we just read about the wickedness of man. He's talking about just overindulgence and all types of sexual pleasure in the marriage and giving in marriage. Now in the chapter six, we're looking at all sorts of wickedness of man and this weird thing that's going on. You see the sons of God. Um, some and you might, you'll see this probably referred to later on. Some translations refer to them as the Nephilim, which is a very just weird subject. So we're just going to kind of deal with it um, very shortly. So the sons of God, there's a couple of different interpretations of what this could be. Now, one interpretation, which I don't really agree with, but just to give it to you, and you can do your own research, are that this is the sons of Seth. So remember, Seth was the appointed one. And then at the end of Seth's life in Genesis 5, it says that he had other sons and daughters. So this is talking about the sons of Seth um, other than the one written in, in Genesis 5. And because he was the appointed one, he had a great 
magnificent sons who married the daughters of women, and they were huge men, giants, men of great renown. The problem is that the interpretation of that puts, paints these guys in a, in a positive light. But these guys are not painted in a positive light. It's actually some pretty serious wickedness that's going on here, uh, as you'll see throughout the scriptures, but the Nephilim were not considered a good thing. And also this term, sons of God, has been used in other pieces of scripture to represent angels. So likely this is talking about fallen angels who saw men and women and, and saw the creation that God had created and decided to do something outside of the natural order and intermingle and, uh, and then had weird, you know, strange relations with these, with the women of the earth. And then the result of that happened to be these unnatural men and women. Now, that's tends to be the interpretation that I take is that these, the Nephilim and the sons of God were angels who really screwed up. Now, why is this important? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So basically, God created man as a separate being, separate from the angels, and they were crea- man, male and female, were created in the image of God. Um, remember that from Genesis chapter 1. In, in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Now, the issue with this is now the, the, the image of man has been tainted by fallen angels in their bloodline. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and that he did not participate necessarily in this sort of sinful act, and his bloodline was pure. This could also be the reason why the Genesis 5 genealogy is so important, because it takes us down the clean lineage of men who did not participate in this sort of weird uh, intermingling that was going on. And so that's why God tries to restart the earth with just Noah and his family, because now the image of God is, is it, while man is still sinful and Noah is still sinful, he's, he's still putting the image of God um, in its purest form in the way that God had intended his creation to be and sort of restarting that way and punishing the angels who committed this act. So that's for your own understanding. You can look at both of those interpretations and do some research on it and figure out which way you want to jump on that, but that's how I see it. And um, remember when we were talking about God reveals something and then there's a spiritual attack against it, okay? So you see that Eve was recognized that there a, a descendant of Eve, a male descendant of Eve was going to be the redeemer. And then Cain is the first one born. Satan turns Cain on his brother Abel and makes him a sinful man so that he can't be the redeemer. So Satan thinks he's one. Well, right now, Noah was found with grace in his eyes, you know, grace in the eyes of the Lord, because this plot has unfolded. Well, you know, Seth was born, and then there was all these other descendants from Seth. And so Satan's like, I have no idea who this Redeemer is going to be. So what if his plan ultimately is to taint the bloodline and taint the image of God in such a way that there can't be a Redeemer born from Eve? And then out of all of that mess, one guy's left, Noah and his family. And so God still finds a way even in the midst of this destructive plan. And so that's sort of the way that I, I see this. So moving, moving on through that, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was just a man, perfect in his generations, walked with God, 
And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So this makes me think of, and we'll get into in Genesis a little bit later, the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God looks out at the whole earth, and he sees that all of the flesh, everybody has been corrupt. And you remember that moment with Abraham, where Abraham is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and God wanting to destroy it? And he's basically bargaining with God, and he says, well, God, what if there's like 50 good guys in Sodom and Gomorrah, then would you, would you spare it? And God says, yeah, sure. Well, what if there's 40? Sure. Well, what if there's 30? And he gets down to like 10 men, and, uh, and God says, sure, if I find 10 good guys, if I find 10 godly men in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll spare the city from destruction. And basically, Abraham's just trying to save his nephew Lot because he's there. Um, and the angel of the Lord goes into the city and finds no one. Um, except Lot, who they help escape the city, and then God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is very similar to me. God is looking out at the whole earth. He sees nothing but corruption except from Noah, and he protects Noah from the destruction, just like he protected Lot. So that pattern is set. Enoch escaped the destruction. Noah escaped the destruction. Enoch escaped the destruction um, as a picture, potentially, of the rapture of the church as well, where the holy escape the destruction. So God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now the rest of chapter 6, I'm not going to read all of the verses, it's just basically giving out the instructions of how he's going to build the ark. He gives the dimensions uh, of how to do it, and basically the dimensions are, um, well, let's see, the length, it's a 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Uh, Or 150 yards long, 45 yards tall, um, or wide, sorry. Its width is 50 cubits, so 25 yards, um, and then 45 feet high, or 15 yards high. So those are the dimensions of the ark, and... This is very interesting because there's a lot of different flood stories that flood the whole world. That's a fun use of words there. But all around, all around the world, there are societies and ancient civilizations that share a story of, the, of a flood wiping out the ancient civilizations on the earth. Now, they all have different problems, except the biblical account. And a main portion of the biblical account that solves a lot of the problems that the other stories of ancient civilizations in the worldwide flood that existed um, is that the vessel during this kind of crazy universal catastrophe uh, would not be able to survive the floodwaters. But I have here a little article that I'm going to read to you. This is from the Business Insider. Um, And when, uh, how many of you saw the picture? The, the movie Noah, when it came out, I think in like 2016. I didn't see it because I heard it was just horrible and extremely biblically inaccurate. However, that picture, that film, spurned some scientists to want to take a look at the biblical account of Noah, and this is sort of what happened from that. This is the headline. Scientists. Noah's ark would have floated with 70,000 animals if built by the dimensions in the Bible. So Noah... 
from Paramount Pictures, right, uh, at the University of Leicester have discovered that Noah's Ark would, could have carried 70,000 animals without sinking it if built from the dimensions listed in the Bible. Noah's Ark would have floated even with two of every animal in the world packed inside, scientists have calculated. Although researchers are unsure if all the creatures could have squeezed into the huge boat, they are confident it would have handled the weight of 70,000 creatures without sinking. Um, a little caveat. See, this is the problem with the understanding of creation from a, a secular point of view is that they think every single species needs to be put into the ark where, as you'll see in chapter seven, it says two of every unclean kind and seven of every clean kind. So it's of its own kind, meaning it can be of the, at the family state. So again, like two lions would cover all of the cats in the entire world. You don't need lions and tigers and cheetahs and leopards and jaguars. You don't need all that, just two lions. So creation scientists estimate that you would need about 9,000 species or about 18,000 creatures to be filled in the ark. And they're saying with these dimensions, you could fit 70,000 creatures without sinking. Continue on. A group of master's students from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Leicester University studied the exact dimensions of the ark set out in Genesis 16 or 6, 13 through 22. According to the Bible, God instructed Noah to build a boat which has 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high recommending gopher wood for the enormous lifeboat. The students averaged out the Egyptian and Hebrew cubit measurement to come up to 48.2 centimeters, making the ark around 144 meters long, about 100 meters shorter than the ark royal. Using the dimensions, the Archimedes principle of buoyancy and approximate animal weights, they were astonished to find out that the ark would have floated. Student Benjamin Jordan, 21, from Barry St. Edmund said, using the dimensions of the arc and the density of the water, we were able to, able to calculate its buoyancy force, which according to Archimedes' principle is equal to the weight of the volume of the fluid of object, the object displaces. Um, so ultimately what they're saying is that the way that this was built and the dimensions in the Bible actually give a plausible explanation for the amount of animals that needed to be saved. Uh, and would have floated amidst this kind of crazy destruction. In fact, because of the Archimedes principle of buoyancy and the way that this was built, the boat could have tipped to nearly 90 degrees and corrected itself. So this is a very plausible thing, and it's amazing to find out that in God's word, he told us to build a boat that would have done exactly what it needed to do. So this points again directly to um, the fact that this makes it a likely story, not just a fairy tale or a myth. This has real, actual, historical, and scientific um, likelihood in the way that it would have been built. And so let's hop down to Genesis 7 and dig into the actual flood and what this looks like. So then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark and all your house and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with me, you shall take with you each, uh, seven each of every clean animal, male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old 
when the floodwaters were on the earth. So that points back to what we talked about yesterday, and last week, with Methuselah dying when Noah turned 600 years old. This says right here, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. Noah, Enoch predicted through Methuselah that this is exactly the year that it would happen. So that's amazing. But you have here um, all of the animals coming up on the earth are coming up into the ark, and then it says it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, don't get caught up on that. Now, 40 is typically used as a, a number of tribulation or trial in the Bible, and that's true. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, um, and we'll get into how that likely happened. But the flood did not last for 40 days and 40 nights, which is also something that we tend to get wrong. It lasted for over a year, and we'll see that as we move on. So Noah, with his sons and his wife, his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark. To Noah, male and female, as God commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, just to point that out again, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain on the earth was 40 days and 40 nights. So this actually connects us to another piece of scripture um, that details the flood. So you see the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Now this is described a little bit differently in Psalm 104 verses 5 through 8. This is also talking about the flood. It says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep, or meaning water, as a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, so the waters covered even the mountains. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, and the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. So this is, that's sort of sum, summarizing the flood. So the fountains of the great deep were opened up and the waters covered even the mountains. And then at the end of the flood, the mountains rose and the valleys grew deeper to displace the water so that land would reappear. Okay. On the very same day, Noah's sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and cattle after their kind and every creeping thing. And so you're just getting a lot of, this is how, people, this is how everything entered the ark. Um, two by two, uh, so that those who entered male and female, all the flesh went in and God commanded him and the Lord shut him in. That's the end of verse 16. So what's happening here when you see the fountains of the great deep is going on? So what does this look like from a historical perspective? Well, maybe you've noticed um, there's this scientific idea of the continent of Pangaea. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's this idea of Pangaea. So Pangaea is the idea that all of the continents used to be together as one big, large landmass. Um, this idea happened I, somewhere between the 15 and 1700s, which is a long span, but my memory fails me right now. But basically, if you look at a globe, you can sort of see that the continents sort of fit together like puzzle pieces, especially if you look at like Africa and South America, they look like they fit, they fit together. Um, and so there, that idea sort of floated around. And then we found some extra evidence, like the Appalachian Mountains. Okay, so the Appalachian Mountains in America, they go from Georgia to Maine. 
But if the continents were put together in the way that they look like from a puzzle piece, you also see very geologically similar mountain ranges in Morocco, Scotland, uh, and Scandinavia, and Finland and Norway. And if you put the, the puzzle pieces together, it would actually create a straight line of mountain ranges if the puzzles were put together, and they're very geologically similar. So the idea is, whatever happened that caused the continents to separate probably had something to do with some sort of plate tectonic shift, um, which you know, we think of as earthquakes. And so the Appalachian Mountains were created out of this great bursting forth from the plate tectonics and then eroded during the flood, which is why the Appalachian Mountains are much shorter than some of the other mountains we see that showed up after the flood, like um, the Himalayas or the Rockies. So this concept is that uh, a little bit about plate tectonics. So this idea of the Earth's crust sort of floating around at the top of the Earth. Imagine all of the continents were together in one big landmass, but they still had their fault lines, right? Which is where you see the edges of the continents and some other, there are some other fault lines within the continents. But at this moment, on God's command, the fountains of the great deep are opened up. Now, what does this mean? We know that plate tectonics isn't just the continents, it's also the ocean floor. The ocean floor also are part of the, the tectonic plates that move around on the earth because under the ocean is there the different parts of the earth that lead us down to the core where it's really hot. And so all of these plates are moving around. Now, if at one point all the continents are together, then you would see something else we know about, underwater volcanoes or geysers, bursting up and creating basically like the Appalachian mountain range and splitting up the east from the west and the continents starting to split apart. And if this happened extremely fast because there was a lot of heat pouring up out of the ocean floor, then there would be a lot of water vapor that was poured into the sky from the heat of the lava flows, from the volcanoes that were created, um, from the geysers and the hot water that was getting poured up into the earth, and that could have created the rainfall for 40 days and 40 nights because of the extra heat and water vapor that was happening on the earth um, and caused the like rain, rain clouds and systems to continually perpetuate for 40 days. The other thing that this would have done is it would have created tsunamis, incredible earthquakes and waves that would have poured over and crashed down all over the Earth's crust. So this is a cataclysmic catastrophe of like epic proportions that we can't even really comprehend as this is happening and it's moving very fast. So there's an idea. Um, now, that's the idea for young Earth. Now, the old Earth idea is that this... Pangaea existed, and the continents separated very slowly, um, as they do now. They're, they're still moving apart very, very slowly. Here's the evidence against that. We've actually found, because what happens when the ocean plates grind up against the, the continental plates, the continental plates are lighter than the ocean plates. So when they crash up against each other, the ocean plates go under because they're denser, and the continental plates go up. So we get mountain ranges or volcanoes from that. And then the, the ocean plates go down into the mantle towards the core of the Earth. There's actually been some thermal imaging done towards the core of the Earth. And we've seen large portions of the Earth's crust still cold heading towards the core of the Earth. Like, and the Earth's crust is miles thick. Now, if, it were, if you think of the Earth as about the size of an apple, then the Earth's crust would be about the skin of an apple. But as you expand that to the Earth's size, you get miles thick of crust. So it takes a long time to melt. 
Now, you would never see the Earth's crust moving towards the core if it was moving very slowly because the core of the Earth is so hot that it would melt if it was just moving at a very slow period of time for billions of years. But if there was a giant cataclysmic event that caused the Earth's crust to go down and towards the core at a very fast pace because the continents split apart very fast, but it happened pretty recently, what you would expect is that that would still be melting because it would still retain its cool from it being a very recent time and the Earth's crust from the ocean being still cool towards the, cool, towards the core of the Earth, which is exactly what you find. And so that points us to the idea of there's a potential here for plate tectonics to show us that the Earth is younger than maybe we think it is. Now there's some other pieces to this that you can look at. Now if you look at the Grand Canyon, and you see all of these layers on the Earth, right? Um, now the Grand Canyon is huge, but these rock layers also expand into Canada and through Europe, and you see the exact same things. Now, geology tells us that they could have been formed over millions or billions of years through erosion happening at a natural rate, because things move very slowly. But here's some of the problems when you look at the rock layers throughout the Earth. They're very flat, right? So when you go to the Grand Canyon, you see a layer that's almost like a parallel line, and it's very flat. And then the next layer is the exact same thing, parallel line, almost like rules on uh, like college-ruled paper. The lines are very straight, and they don't cross. Now, if there was erosion happening over millions of years on each rock layer, you'd expect it to be a little bit uneven. You'd expect it to have sort of natural ebbs and flows, and that's not what you see. It actually looks a little bit more like it was sediment that was poured down very fast, and because it, all of this sedimentary layer weighs about the same, it ended up looking like a very flat layer, and then the next sediment was poured down on top of it very fast, and it's a little bit lighter, so it moved up on top, and it's laid down very fast, and that's actually what you see when you're looking at these rock layers out in the world. And so the two views are basically either this. The bottom of the, of the rock layers is either the oldest portion of the fossil record, and then the Earth gets younger as you move towards the top, or it's one giant cataclysmic event, and you see certain areas. So the bottom fossil record would be the Cambrian area, area, which is a bunch of animals that would have lived near the ocean floor and marine life. So as these geysers and things were exploding, the Earth's crust was pulling apart. If that's the first layer of rock you see, that makes sense because that's the first group of animals that would have been affected by this crazy fountains of the deep getting burst open and bursting forth in the Earth. And so that would have been the first buried layer during the flood. And as you actually look at the layers, it also looks like you're starting from the deepest areas of the ocean and getting closer to the shore. And then from the shore, closer to animals that were, cl that were closer inland. Now, why, when you start getting to land animals, like say, dinosaurs, um, why don't you see humans buried there if humans and dinosaurs were living together? Well. One of the reasons that potentially is an argument for this is humans are very clever. Um, where animals tend to be very instinctual. So they might have ran, but they wouldn't have the type of reason that humans might have had to go somewhere to maybe higher ground where they would avoid water. And so as humans continue to try to avoid this flood and this rising of the waters that's coming towards them, um, they all end up in the highest layer because they're constantly trying to avoid the destruction that's coming towards them because humans have better reason than some of the animals. 
that makes sense. Um, and that could be just one of the few explanations that explain why humans are buried so high in the fossil record. But, but this also points us to why there are different, um, like fish fossils at the top of mountains, or why are there fossils of animals that just don't seem to belong on the continent that they're on? Like they just, they seem like they should be in Australia, but during this kind of crazy flood water and pouring down and tsunamis, um, burying things very quickly. You also see a lot of animals that look like they're trying to run away or swim away from something in the fossil record, which would imply something horrible is coming after them. So there is legitimate ideas and a scientific way to look at this where you don't have to go, I'm giving up all of my intellectual understanding and I'm going to be considered an idiot for believing this young earth idea. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot of proof and ideas that surround this young earth idea that actually make sense when you look at them from that perspective. And so the argument should be a little bit more open than it is. So that's sort of the physical, okay? And when you look at this, the two frames of reference are either this, you know, the young earth creationist view is uh, catastrophism. So this is basically the idea that the earth and the way that we see it now was shaped by catastrophe and the flood being the big giant catastrophe that it is. And some of the evidence for that lines up with things like Mount St. Helens exploding, which in a, just a few weeks created very similar rock layers to what you would see in the Grand Canyon. And not to mention that a lot of things are uniform across the whole earth. The other part of this is that some view the flood as a local thing and not a worldwide thing. The problem with this is God's covenant with Noah that he would never destroy all flesh again. Well, there's still tsunamis and there's still floods, so God would not be keeping his promise if it was only a local flood because there would still be people dying and things happening if it was just a local thing. So if it's a global thing, then yes, but also um, this young versus old idea. So we find out that catastrophes can actually change the geology of the earth and change the way that things look in a very short period of time. And so things are changing in the idea of geology. Now this idea of plate tectonics and stuff that we talked about today, this understanding of the world and how earthquakes happen is less than 100 years old, this complete understanding of plate tectonics. So it's very new in the world of science. The other idea is uniformitarianism. So uniformitarianism, uh, which is a really long word to say this, we look at everything, how it happens today, and we see those processes and we calculate how they would, how long it would take for it to happen on the earth. So if a river carves into rock at an inch a year, every year for 10 years, then we say, okay, then every year forever, this river must have carved into the rock one inch each year. And well, you see the river to the top of the rocks that surround it are X amount of height. So the earth must be, or this river must be X amount of millions of years old because we expect the processes to remain the same always and always and always. Um, and that was the general view of science for a couple of hundred years and it was actually held by Darwin's mentor. So that's what we're up against, but you can see that catastrophes change the shape and the geology of the earth in a very short period of time. And actually, this was predicted, this idea of uniformitarianism and things going on as they always have had been going on forever was predicted by Peter. 
let me share that with you. So Peter actually talks about the flood in his second epistle in chapter 3. And this is what he has to say about it. The day of, this is uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, I should be starting in verse 3. So starting in verse 3, knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, which points back to the days of Noah, in walking in their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Talking about Jesus' second coming. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they will, so this is, what the, this is what the scoffers will be saying. Things continue on forever as they always have since the beginning of creation. This is literally the, the idea of what uniformitarianism is. This is what Peter is talking against. And so he says this about these people. For they willingly forget that by the word of God, the heavens were old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with the water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So now Peter is saying, yes, the earth was formed out of water by the word of God, which is, points us right back to Genesis 1. In the first day, you know, there was light. But the second, or Genesis 1-2 is the earth was without form and void. Um, I'm sorry. Let me move. Day, day, day two. Day two. The firmament that was above the waters, he separated the waters. And so you see the atmospheric waters. Um, and in the first day, you know, you see the spirit hovering over the great deep which is also water. So he's saying the earth was formed initially with water. It was also destroyed with water at the flood. And now he's pointing out to the next destruction being with fire, which is exactly the description you see in Revelation. So Peter's pointing to the past and he's pointing to the future. And he's saying there will be scoffers that disagree with this idea of the flood and they will hold on to this idea that things have gone on forever, always the same, never changing, uh, which is literally the idea of uniformitarianism. And so, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord does not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away, with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he's pointing now to the future saying that we are looking for this ultimate judgment to come because then the new heaven and new earth will be a place where only righteousness dwells. So you see the beginning pointing to the end and how scripture is all pointing together and coming together as one full story. <sighs> where were we in Genesis 7? I don't even know. So the flood was there for 40 days. The waters prevailed. No, this is verse 18. The waters prevailed 
This is meaning they keep coming up upon the earth. So this is talking about the tsunami type waves that are crashing over onto the land to cover it, to make sure um, that there is just covered in water globally and ceased on the earth. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heavens were covered. So you're gonna see that this went on and on and on in this description of the water and, and the boat floating on top of the waters. And it says this, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So the waters kept coming, the, the bursts keep coming forward, the geysers keep opening up, the lava keeps still flowing, the tsunamis and earthquakes are still coming for 150 days. Chapter eight, then God remembered Noah and every, every living thing and the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So things have calmed down finally and everything is starting to subside. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day on the mountain, uh, of the month on the mountains of Ararat. This is a little interesting verse. Things finally calm down. They stop. The ark, which has saved a portion of humanity and a portion of the animals of the earth, has finally rested. The flood's not over. They're not able to populate the earth, but finally things have rested. And they've rested on the 17th day of the seventh month. I've talked about this before, but hopefully... You don't remember, so it's just as astonishing. What is the 17th month of the seventh, or the 17th day of the seventh month? What is that day? Well, there's two calendars in Judaism. There's the cultural calendar and the religious calendar. Now, the, uh, the religious calendar, the first month is uh, Tishri, and the seventh month is Nisan. But the religious calendar wasn't set up until the Exodus when the Passover happened because the Passover changed their religious calendar the first month. So this is clearly talking about the cultural calendar because this is well before the Passover. So in the cultural calendar, the first month is Nizan and the seventh month is Tishri. Well, just like I pointed out, the Passover changes the calendar. The seventh month would is the first month in the religious calendar because of the Passover. So the seventh month of the cultural calendar contains the Passover. Exodus tells us that the Passover happens on the 14th day. Okay? So Jesus was arrested on the Passover. He was arrested the night of the Passover. And remember, the Passover, go, the day is in Jewish mind, goes from day or evening to morning, and that's a full day. But Jesus was arrested Passover night, put on trial, and then the next day, put on trial and crucified during Passover day. And the night before, was still, he was still crucified on the 14th. And he was in the ground for three days and three nights before his resurrection, um, which would take us to what? The 17th day of the seventh month. The same day that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat is the same day that the resurrection of Jesus takes place. So this is the point, right? This is what this points to. So the ark, which is a form of Jesus that lifted people up above the destruction and saved Noah and his family, rests on the mountains of Ararat on the same day that Jesus was resurrected. But the work wasn't over yet, right? Now they weren't able to go and, and fill the earth and populate it yet because the flood was still, the waters were still receding on the earth. There wasn't a place to go. But the redemptive work of God 
was done and the work for Noah to repopulate the earth and to refill the earth and to multiply was about to begin. Just like Jesus' resurrection, the redemptive work of Christ was done, but it was still like 40 more days um, before he ascended into heaven, and then even a little bit more time before the Holy Spirit came down at the time of Pentecost and the church got itself going to work. Just a little piece of distance there. So this is what this is pointing to, and the parallels here are just unbelievable. And so, again, in Genesis, you see the picture and the redemptive work of Christ showing up even in this ark story. And the water, this is next verse, verse 5, and the waters decrease continually until the 10th month and the 10th month of the first day. And this is going to kind of go on and on and on and on until you get to um, verse 13, which says, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month of the 21st day of the month, the earth was dried. So you see here is the 601st year in the first month of, Noah, of Noah's first 601st year. So the whole flood took over a year for this whole process to take place before Noah could step back on land. So then God spoke to Noah saying, Get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your wives, and you bring out every living thing of all the flesh and all the birds with you and everything that creeps on the earth, that they may abound on the earth to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons, and they went out. They enjoyed, they did what they were supposed to do. Uh, so verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took, every clean, and took one of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So Noah builds an altar and he, he offers up a sacrifice to God. And so this picture is again, after we talked about the art resting and showing a picture of the resurrection. This is now talking a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus and how it points um, to God delighting in the redemptive work that was done to Noah through the sacrifice and God smelled a soothing aroma. And so chapter nine, we'll try to go through this really, really quick. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what you're going to see in chapter nine, and I'm just going to summarize this for you because we don't have time to read the whole thing. But chapter 9 really points to the parallel between Noah's story and Adam's story. Okay, so what you see is that Adam had three sons. He had Cain, Abel, and then Seth was the appointed one after Cain killed Abel. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Cain was a murderer, and uh, he committed a, a travesty of a sin um, and was cursed. Ham, in chapter 9, commits a sin against Noah, uh, and he sees Noah drunk and naked. Um, and so both, both of the sons committed sins, uh, and Noah's sin had to do with nakedness, just like Adam's sin had to do uh, with him noticing that he was naked. So they both had one son who committed a grievous, a grievous sin against God. They both experienced their sin through the indulgence of fruit. So Noah's sin had to do with the overindulgence of, of wine, the fruit of the vine. Adam's had to do 
with his partaking in the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the other piece of this is that Noah, when he finally settled down, he became a, gar- he became a farmer and he grew a vineyard. Adam was told to become a gardener and contain the Garden of Eden. So why is this important? Why is chapter 9 point this parallel to Adam and Noah? Because while God did his redemptive work and reset the earth back to its original sort of creation state with Noah, sin entered the picture again uh, in very much the same way. And so God's redemptive story is not finished with Noah, but is still playing out. And the rest of the scriptures will still continue to point us to the ultimate redemptive work that will be done in Jesus. So in summation, as you look at this story, you see the physical history uh, and sort of the scientific background that can be pointed to. So you look at the ark, the way that it was built, it could have contained more animals than it needed to and still maintained a float. And the way that it was built, it could have tipped up to almost 90 degrees and still gotten back on its axis in a world that would have had crazy sort of waves and tsunamis and destruction like you've never seen before. So it was built in such a way. And this is ancient text written 3,500 years ago. We would have had no understanding of Archimedes' principle of buoyancy, but somehow God created, God told Noah to create a ship that would have lasted this exact type of destruction that we've seen written played out. And as you look even at the fossil record and some of the issues with the layers being very clean and even and straight and not having the erosion bends uh, and how the fossil record actually shows deepest of the ocean up to the highest from the shore points potentially, you can have two perspectives. You can look at it in age of the earth or you can look at it in groups of animals that were buried during stages of the flood. And so there is an intellectual background you can have from the history as you look at the natural world to see that this is very plausible. Secondly, you see the spiritual piece of this. The evil and the lust that people had in the days of Noah and how they were concerned and self-consumed and lustful. And Jesus tells us that that's what we need to look for for the future destruction. And then the attitude. As Peter points out, the attitude of the people before the flood. Having this idea that everything just kind of goes on as it always has since the beginning of creation, um, and that they can just follow after their own evil desires, is the same attitude that people will have in the last days, which is also what Jesus says. But he also points to this idea that people will look at the earth and assume that everything has gone on as it always has, even in their scientific theories. And so he even points out the flaw in uniformitarianism. And so as you look at this from a historical, a scientific, and a spiritual background, you can see how the beginning connects to the end and how Genesis connects all the way to Revelation and how it points us to what we can learn from our past and try to avoid the coming future. With that, let's pray. Father God, thank you again for opening up these chapters to us um, and your story of Noah and his flood. God, we barely touched the surface of the evidences and things that point to the, the true history of your story. But God, I hope it's enough to extend and increase our faith in knowing that we can trust in you, your word, your past, and your future plans.
Uh, and God, help us to be a part of your story so that we can fulfill our part. And we know that your judgment, as Peter said, it's, you're not waiting to take forever. You're being patient so that as many as possible won't perish. Help us to be a part of that story and share your love and your mercy and your grace to those who need it. They can become a part of your family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.